Welcome to Episode 1 of the Allen's Eyes and Ears Podcast. Pause for musical fanfare. Pause while I remember that we don't have ads or a Patreon, and I spend all my quarters buying comics, so we have no money for a musical fanfare. Nonetheless, hello! I'm Alan, sometimes known around these parts as Professor Alan. In this debut, premiere, collector's edition episode of this original, one-of-a-kind, not-stolen-from-anyone podcast concept, I'm going to start by talking about the premise for this new show, and then we're going to engage in some movie talk. And that is actually part of the reason why I wanted to do this show, for this show to replace the recently ended Comics Reading Journal. Yes, Eyes and Ears will feature comic book content. It may well end up being dominated by comic book content. Who knows? But I wanted to start somewhere else. I wanted there to be a detectable, noticeable change. So I'm starting the new show with this episode with some movie talk. Now, overall, this show could cover anything I see or read or listen to. Eyes and ears. That's why I called my blog that way back when, even before Relatively Geeky started up. Now, before we get too far down the road, I wanted to more broadly talk about my plans, my hopes, goals, aspirations, and a few inspirations for this show. And like all of our podcasts, Em and I talked about this on our 10 Years of Podcasting discussion episode, where I confess that I pretty much borrow, because stealing sounds so negative, borrowing. No, wait, it's an homage. I'm homaging various podcasts and podcasters in my shows. And the show on which I got my big break, The Book Guy Show. We talked about anything that connected or related to books. Books, audiobooks, comic books, movies and TV based on books. We even threw in podcast talk as well. And basically, that's what I envision for this show, although without the required tenuous connection to books. So, what types of topics would be on the table over here? Books, comic books, audiobooks, TV, movies, music, podcasts? Did I leave anything out? Audio drama? Anything that hits my eyes or ears? Now, this is what a lot of my buddies do with their shows, or at least some of their shows. You get an episode of Andy Leyland's Palace of Glittering Delights, and what are you going to get? Maybe an episode about a series of British spy TV, or a chat about a run of Spider-Man, Doctor Who talk, Star Trek, or James Bond. It could be a discussion of a British band. You just never know. And that's a bit what I'm aiming for, being able to follow the podcast muse wherever it leads. Michael Bailey manages to do this really well on Views from the Long Box. That show is almost always about comic book talk, I'll grant you that, but again, that comic talk could take any one of a number of forms or, or a number of episode formats. 
personally, I like the structure of the Quarterbin podcast and the thematic nature of Doomspeak. But along with those two shows, the Reading Journal was also, at least from my perspective as a creator, another show that had a specific format, a fairly rigid structure. So replacing that show in the lineup with this one, with the Eyes and Ears show, the intent is that we'll have a little less structure here, less format, and less locked-in expectations. I mean that for both you and me. The plan is that we will be able to just go different directions in the episodes. You can't understand how much I hate to say this, the physical pain, emotional trauma that it causes, but I guess this show may end up resembling (laughs) Shag's most recent new show, Once Upon a Geek, where he just talks for a while about stuff he likes. So, yeah, that, that hurt admitting that one. Let's just quickly change the subject, okay? Take my buddies Luke Giaconetti and Tom Panarese, for example. What they do really well, in addition to mentioning WPIX in every episode they produce, is to work in miniseries into their big solo shows. I'm talking about Earth Destruction Directive for Luke, Pop Culture Affidavit for Tom. So with Earth Destruction, Luke has covered, issue by issue, the entirety of Marvel Comics' Godzilla series. And he is dangerously close to knocking out the original Ultraman TV series. Tom has run a number of miniseries within his show as well. I'm thinking of his origin story episodes as well as the Cold War series. And that's something that intrigues me as well. I don't have specific plans for specific miniseries, but I like the idea of having a show that's flexible enough to allow for miniseries. If that interests me at some point, it's kind of what I do with Doomspeak in a sense. Because every second or third episode, we're revisiting the 2099 series. So that's one thing I hope to work into this podcast as time goes by. So my thinking is that this is going to be a little bit book, guys. With dashes of pop culture affidavit and Palace of Glittering Delights, a little bit of Earth Destruction Directive and views from the long box sprinkled on top, and maybe, just maybe, a pinch of shag. I know. Sounds yummy. So here we are, and this particular episode is going to be about movies. And last summer, summer of 22, I started watching a lot of movies. Generally, I'm a TV show guy. But I started watching movies both on the streamers and on cable TV. And for some reason, I must have been planning a blog post at least because I started a ranking. I didn't grade or score the movies as I watched them, but I kept an ordered list. The first movie I watched, number one on the list. And then each time I watched another, I slid it into place, never reordering or rearranging just where it fit in that list. So the second movie I watched would either be first or second. Third movie would fit in somewhere in there, and so on and so on. The key 
was never reordering, because that way lies madness. Watch a movie, slide it into place in the list, and move on. And by the end of that year, the end of 2022, I had around 20 movies or so in a list, and I posted them, I think, on Facebook. And then when 2023 started, I did the same thing. And when I decided to go this new direction with the Eyes and Ears show, I figured turning that list into a podcast episode could maybe be a decent way to introduce this new show, this new concept to you lovely listeners. So I have 20 movies that I watched over the first six months or so of this year, 2023, and I have them listed in order, Casey Kasem style, counting down to number one. And we'll get to that after this podcast promo. Between the golden age of Atlantis and the rise of recorded history, there were ages undreamed of. Hither came heroes and villains possessing swords and magic, whose deeds became tales and legends. I have come to relate these sagas. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. Days of High Adventure, a new podcast discussing a variety of comics that fall into the fantasy or sword and sorcery genre. Available on most podcast services and Anchor FM. And we're back. By the way, if when I said I was going to do this countdown in Casey Kasem style, and you wondered... What the guy who voiced Shaggy had to do with any of this? You are clearly too young to be listening to this podcast. It's probably past your bedtime and also get off my lawn. Three words. American. Top. 40. Anyway, here are the first 20 movies that I watched in 2023. And the first four qualify as movies I didn't like. That is where I would draw the line between rotten and fresh, or thumb down, or thumb up. So number 20, Wonder Woman 1984. When I was putting this episode together, making my notes, I was sitting next to my wife on the sofa watching probably the professional season of The Great British Baking Show, and I had to stop. I couldn't get into this part of the notes because if she glanced over, she might be upset because this is my least favorite movie on the list. It's in the thumbs down category, but she quite enjoyed it. And I never actually revealed to her that I, you know, was not on the same page. Now, let me explain. As you would imagine, a woman who willingly married me and then has willingly stayed married to me for 36 years. Her tastes, her standards, can certainly be called into question. So sure, she likes me, but hey, she also likes Wonder Woman 1984, and that may explain the entirety of our relationship. But as I've often said, the single most important quality to look for in a woman is low 
standards. Again, it is what has worked for me. Back to the movie briefly. This is one of those films that just from the start, from the get-go, from the very premise, I was not going to be on board. I know there are behind-the-scenes reasons for bringing back Steve Trevor, Doyleist reasons, but I didn't like it. I didn't buy it. And the overall story, the, the plot of the bad guy focusing on wishing, it just did not push into that hard enough, explore, extrapolate from that. It took an interesting premise and just didn't do a lot with it. Believe me, read 8 Billion Genies, and you'll see what can be done with that premise. I like Gal Gadot, but her charm was just not enough to rescue this from me. But hey, we're all friends here, right? So let's not tell Mrs. Quarterbin about this part of the episode, okay? 19, Black Adam. Yes, The Rock has charm, loads of it. Maybe even more than Gal Gadot. But the movie just didn't work for me, pretty much on any level. I did not think that they were successful in separating the character from the rest of the DCU. They needed to go one way or the other. Either it's part of the DCU and connected to Shazam, or it's not. For me, they didn't fully commit to either of those paths. It's similar to the Eternals. There's a ton of backstory to Black Adam and his land, and the movie decides to include a ton of that ton of backstory. I felt that it dragged. It dragged a ton. And as much as I dig the Justice Society, I just didn't get how they fit into this character's world. Not, not just to this movie, but to the DC movie world that Black Adam was trying hard to be a part of. Overall, I think this just underserved a really solid group of performers. Not just The Rock, but Aldous Hodge, Pierce Brosnan, who I thought was very good in the film, and Sarah Shahi, who I know mostly from the excellent TV series Person of Interest. I went into the viewing of this a little hesitant, a little uncertain, but I did hear some good things from some of my online buddies, mostly about the JSA, so I was a little bit hopeful. But when the film ended, I just felt empty, a real missed opportunity to me. I just don't think the overall story or the particulars of the script were really there. Number 18, Ghost Rider. Not the last time you'll hear the name Nick Cage. Cards on the table. I am a sucker for him. I like that he's one of us, that he's a geek. And I also respect that he did not trade on his family's famous name. For both of those reasons, I like him a lot. And I'm inclined to like his work. I go into every Nick Cage flick wanting to like it, hoping I'll love it. For example, don't get me started on the glory that is National Treasure. And the actual pretty goodness that is National Treasure 2. But this, Ghost Rider, wow. Just wow. The character background in the comics is so strong, and I guess Cage must have known that, but still, 
so many poor choices, so many wrong choices in the making of this film. Yes, some of the problems were budgetary, of course, but not all of them. There were just too many head-scratching, what is happening here, elements. After the first stunt show, he rides out and, well, well it's, it's been a while since I saw it, but doesn't he ride out and catch up on the highway with the news van that his former gal friend is working at? She's the reporter. And they stop traffic and she interviews him. It's just, what? I am more than ready to suspend disbelief. The part about the demon and the possessed motorcycle? I am totally on board with all that. But stopping traffic for an impromptu interview? Come on, man, that's just not going to happen. The other one annoyed me because it's such a simple mistake in scripting and language and just... How could nobody on the set know this? This is really picky. But one of Johnny's big stunts is to jump the length of a football field, which is 100 yards or 300 feet, which is how I think they say it in the film. So far, so good. But the announcer routinely refers to the 300-foot jump as going from field goal to field goal, which, just first in English, that makes no sense. Like, literally no sense. A field goal is not a part of the field. Perhaps from end zone to end zone could have worked in terms of the language. But that is not what this jump is. As filmed, he jumps from goalpost to goalpost. That alone is not enough to annoy me. What annoys me is that the goalposts are at the back of the end zones, 10 yards behind the goal lines. So this actual jump, as it's portrayed in the film, doesn't just get the words wrong, it gets the numbers wrong, because it's 120 yards, 360 feet. And this is said more than once. It is a set of mistakes that are repeated more than once. There are a lot of people who watch football, but I guess that the Venn diagram of people who worked on this film and people who know even a little bit about football was a null set. And I don't think it's just that glaring, easy-to-correct mistake in and of itself that's my problem. I think the 300 feet versus 360 feet field goal to field goal is reflective of a more general sense of carelessness and inattention to detail that just plagues this movie. I wonder if as we move up the list, I'll talk less about the movies that I like more. I guess we'll see. 17, Sin City, A Dame to Kill For. I swear not all of these are going to be comic book movies. Well, here is one I don't know that I have a lot to say about, actually. I enjoyed the first one decently enough. Certainly way more than this one. I don't mind the weird stylistic element of how the movie looks. I actually liked that quite a bit. So that's not the problem I had with this. I actually struggled to remember the problems I had with this, other than it just didn't seem to go anywhere. It may have been too aware of how stylized it was, and leaned too heavily into that 
at the expense of script, I'm not sure. For a movie that looks as different as this does from every other movie, the story and performances are just bland, really bland. Or maybe the style is so different that you just can't return to it. It only works the first time that you do it. Either way, this is, what do the kids say these days? Meh. Do the kids still say that these days? If not, please don't let me know. So at this point, we are moving now from movies that I did not like, thumbs down, to movies that were thumbs up. So starting with, I guess, the barely fresh, number 16, War for the Planet of the Apes 2017. This is from the recent series, as a matter of fact. I watched all three of these back-to-back. So, a couple things to say about that one, obviously. Uh, All three of them are on the list. And uh, this is the last one that was released, the most recent. But I think I heard somewhere that they were planning to release a fourth one, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, maybe? Next year or the year after, but I'm not sure, A, if that is true whatsoever, or B if it will be affected by the current Hollywood strike as things get pushed back. Since I have two more chances to talk about this ape series in this episode, let me detour briefly to talk about the writer's strike. Not in any serious way, of course. Just how it affects, you know, me. And let me ask you all this. By the way, I spent almost 20 years in Virginia, so I can call y'all, y'all. Let me ask y'all this. Am I the only person who kind of views the strike as a chance to get caught up on the long list of shows and movies I have to watch? Kind of like that first COVID season when no new TV shows came out in fall 2020 or spring 2021. Again, I viewed that as an opportunity to take a breath not worry about new episodes and falling further behind, but as a chance to catch up. Is that bad? 15. Kick-Ass 2. I did mention the Nicolas Cage part earlier, right? Because I think the first Kick-Ass is quite a good movie. I knew that the sequel was going to be a step down. Uh, I knew it was a step down in popularity and in ratings uh, compared to the first one. But when I saw that they were playing them both back-to-back on cable, I thought that I would give the second one a fair shot. And this one really does suffer from the lack of Nick Cage. And I don't think this is just my blind fandom of his. Did I mention that in the early days of COVID, I watched his dreadful Bangkok Dangerous? Like, on purpose? So, despite my obvious bias... I stand by the notion that what holds Kick-Ass 2 back largely is the lack of Cage's charm, which was on full display in the first one in his character Big Daddy. There were some elements I liked about this. Big Daddy is a presence in the movie, the driving inspiration for Mindy, uh, for Hit Girl. And there were some logical leaps in plotting, more heroes being inspired by the first hero, Uh, The Becoming of a Hero Team, Uh, those were nice bits, some good casting helps, but it just does fall well short 
of that first one. Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, 2014. This was the second in that series and is the second one on this list. I think that overall, as you will have confirmed in the next 10 minutes or so, was that I liked each one of these movies a little bit less as the series went on. Again, I watched them all back to back to back. Maybe that affected me. Maybe I felt them drag more because I did watch them in, in such quick succession. Again, note that these are all on the I liked this movie category. I think the overarching story in these films is strong. The origin story of the uplift of the apes and Caesar's rise to power. I could buy that. I like that. I think that as the series goes on, I think the cast might decline a bit, except for Andy Serkis, who was great, consistently great across all the films. Number 13, Aeon Flux. Never watched the MTV show, but this one always intrigued me. Cyberpunk is not necessarily my favorite subgenre within sci-fi, but again, this always intrigued me, mostly the visuals. Of course, now, those visuals, the ones in this movie, are almost 20 years old, so you need to be careful uh, as a viewer hanging my hat too much, relying too much on those decades-old visuals. You know, I mean, this is a standard dystopian story. The world population cut to basically 1%, after a deadly virus. I can't remember exactly, but I think that terrible virus was supposed to have happened between the time of the movie's release and now. So this is what I call a future of the past type of movie, although there's probably a better name for that. This apocalypse in this world happened in something like 2012, 2014, whatever. And hey, as bad as COVID was, at least we didn't lose 98% of the world population, which was the toll of this fictional virus. The movie actually takes place a few centuries after that. And one problem that I had was that it didn't seem to explain how we got from there to here. Anyway, it's a standard science fiction battle movie, and for that, it isn't bad. I think it did bomb at the box office. And I'd say after watching it that it probably deserved a better fate than that. Number 12, X-Men Origins Wolverine. This was a first watch for me. Somehow, some of the X-Men and Wolverine movies slipped past me over the years. By years, I mean over the decades. I think sometimes these long series of movies, like decades plus Long string of continuity, yes, loose continuity in some cases, yes, but even so. I think sometimes these films get lost in themselves, plot-wise, trying to be so clever, either to specifically ignore, intentionally ignore, certain elements of prior movies, or trying to work in, specifically, certain elements of the prior movies. This one, no, it's not great, but it has some elements. And think about this. I've already mentioned four or five comic book films in this countdown already. So there's that. I mean, being ahead of some of that dreck isn't a lot to crow about. 
but X-Men Origins Wolverine was definitely head and shoulders above that Drek that I've already mentioned. So again, that's something. And then taking us to the halfway point of the countdown, number 11. Confess, Fletch. This one took me completely by surprise. I watched the original Chevy Chase movie back in the day, Fletch, and I have a vague recollection of reading at least one of the original novels, again, way back when. But when this film showed up on one of the streamers, I think it was a Netflix or a Prime, I don't remember, I was interested. And about the fifth or tenth time that I saw this as a, you might like this, I thought to myself, you know what? I might like this. And you know what? I did, more or less, like this. I mentioned The Rock and Gal Gadot previously as performers oozing with charm. Now, John Hamm has the potential to turn on the charm, to make that smile work for him. He doesn't always have to be the driven, intense, haunted Don Draper. No, he's not Chevy Chase funny, but he is, or can effortlessly be, again, the word I've used a lot this episode, charming. He can be charming. What I liked about this is that it did seem like a throwback style of movie. It had stakes, but they weren't earth-shattering, earth-destroying stakes. They were not comic book movie stakes, but they were stakes that mattered greatly to the small cast of characters in this film. And that's what this is. It's a mystery with twists and turns along the way, told in an engaging and occasionally amusing way, funny when it needed to be, funny when funny was called for. Again, I have to say, I was surprised by how much I really liked this. Number 10, Conan the Barbarian. Conan, on the other hand, not so charming, but compelling. And I'm not really an action movie guy, especially not a big dumb action movie guy, or action for action's sake guy. Let me put it this way. I have listened to way more episodes of the podcast Action Film Face-Off than I have actually seen of the films covered on the podcast Action Film Face-Off. So this is not my preferred genre necessarily, and it wasn't until this one and, spoilers, Destroyer showed up on cable back-to-back in the early summer when classes were over that... I thought I'd take a shot. I will talk about them again in a few minutes, but this one wasn't bad. A few moments of cool action, but too many slow bits for my tastes. And I'll mention this again later, but Arnold's acting was just at its beginning stages of development, let's say. Number nine, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, the first one in the modern trilogy. The Tim Burton one does not count on any list in any way, shape, manner, or form. So, the first modern apes movie. Uh, I think, like I said previously, strong cast. And a very good origin story for the apes for their future rise. 
They did the necessary nod to an origin story, to a why and a how, and that was enough for me. Make it believable enough within the world you are asking me to inhabit as a viewer. Technically, this movie is probably better than any of the sequels in the original series. It's hard to beat the Charlton Heston original, and I think it'll be hard to ever beat that. One of the reasons the first one is so good is that it's based on a really good, albeit a bit different, sci-fi novel by Pierre Buell. Forgive the horrible attempt to pronounce the Frenchman's last name. I mention he is French, and will point out that in the novel, an important scene involves the Eiffel Tower and not the Statue of Liberty, if I remember it correctly. So well done, Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Good start to the series, like I said. I think the following slipped a little bit each time. But, you know, sometimes that happens when you have a ranked list. Some are going to be lower or higher than others. For example, number eight, The Legend of Tarzan, is higher on the list than any of the ones I've mentioned so far. And I am kind of a tough sell on Tarzan, not because I don't like the concept or the character, but because I like it so much. I love the Burroughs novels. I think I'm about halfway through the list, maybe more. And I even appeared on two episodes of Greystoked, a podcast discussing the Johnny Weissmuller films. So I was hesitant with this one because I do have a particular take on Tarzan that I prefer, but I actually saw pretty decent comments about this one, reviews on this one. So when I had the opportunity, I took the plunge. It's not bad. A miscellaneous Skarsgård plays Tarzan, with Margot Robbie as Jane, Samuel L. Jackson, Christoph Waltz play important roles as well. And this is a smart Tarzan. That's the version I prefer. A man comfortable in London's high society, whose wife may well prefer that life, but who hears the repeated call to return to the jungle, in some cases to save the jungle from... Usually it's evil miners or something like that. And that's more or less what we have in this film. So this one really worked for me. I was hesitant, like I said, but it was definitely enjoyable. Conan the Destroyer, number seven. Sticking with the pulps, back to Arnold. And I know that I'm in the distinct minority here in liking this one more than the first one. Destroyer has much lower scores than Barbarian on Metacritic and Rotten Tomatoes and all those places. And I guess I, I can see why. But the strides that Arnold made in terms of his accent and his acting, those elements really improved the film for me. I liked the troop of characters that Conan assembles in this, including the great warrior Zula, played by Grace Jones. And yes, I'll confess it, Possibly my Wonder Years-fueled crush on Olivia Dabo may have greatly helped my appreciation for this film. I'm glad the big bad was the wizard Thoth Amon, and I admit it, I enjoyed the happy ending. Happy for everyone except Conan, who just can't settle down, but who must seek out further adventures. Surprisingly good. Like, I mean that literally this time. I am surprised. <laughs> 
and maybe some of you listening are also as surprised at how much I enjoyed Conan the Destroyer. And here are the top six. We move now into movies that I really, really liked. These are equivalent to the ones that earned A's. We can put it that way. And I'm not sure what it says about me, but three of these were released before I was born. Including number six, The War of the Worlds from 1953, a legitimate sci-fi classic. I had never seen it, but by geek osmosis and reading more than one comic book adaptation of both the film and the H.G. Wells novel, I knew what was going to happen plot-wise. But even armed with that knowledge, I really enjoyed watching how it all played out. The characters, the relationship, the science, it all worked. The lack of special effects, even that worked. It was tense, it was dramatic, it was well-made. Not a lot to say about it, really. Except, again, I really enjoyed it. Number five, you knew we weren't done with Nick Cage. Kick-ass. I did mention the Nick Cage thing, right? Because without him, this one definitely falls back a good number of spots in the countdown. Without Cage, there's no way that a Mark Millar adaptation would ever be this high on one of my lists. I tend to not love his comics, the way he handles uh, characters mostly. Now, when this movie came out, it had some weird pull for me. I don't see a lot of films in the theater, fewer and fewer as time goes by, but I did go see this one when it came out, liked it, rewatched it pre-COVID and still liked it, and re-rewatched it a few months ago and still, still liked it. Even though a very young Chloe Grace Moretz says one of the really, really bad words in it. But the relationship of Big Daddy and Hit Girl is believable. The circumstances are not, of course. The details are not. But the core of that relationship, the trust, the love, wonderful. Two really strong performers. Moretz is very talented. In real life, this relationship would be horrifying. But this is a movie, and it's charming. Maybe it's because he sees his role as a trainer, as a teacher, that I identify with Cage's character. Maybe in my mind, I just substitute M for Hit Girl and podcasting for really, really violent crime fighting and see the similarities in their relationship and ours. Yes, Kick-Ass definitely has some dark elements, and I understand people letting those elements dim their thoughts on the film, or even driving them away from even watching it. I do that with plenty of films myself. You do you. This is a no-judgment zone, but I dug it when it came out, and I still do. Number four, Patriot Games. I have read all of the Tom Clancy novels, or as we joke, at least the ones he wrote while he was alive. And I love a bunch of them, and I pretty much like all of the others. Now, the movies are pretty good, 
And I don't really have a good reason for this, but I haven't seen the Jack Ryan TV show on Prime, I think it is. But it's definitely on my list. Now, like I said, the movies are pretty good. And this one, I would probably rank second. It is hard to beat The Hunt for Red October with the great Russian actor, Mikhail Shonkanarievich. But this one, yeah, I... I think it falls in second place. This is the one about the Troubles, the Northern Ireland situation. Jack Ryan doesn't mean to get involved. He doesn't want to get involved. He just kind of accidentally gets involved. He's retired from intelligence work, but gets caught in a crossfire and kills a terrorist whose brother, unfortunately, is Sean Bean. And he holds a grudge. So Ryan, this is the Harrison Ford uh, version of the character, so Jack Ryan gets dragged back in onto the job, and the two of them go against each other. The action is strong, the story is strong, the characters are strong. Harrison Ford is really good in this movie. And the rest of the cast, Sean Bean and everyone else, uh, is does really good work as well. So like I said, it's actually not one of my favorite Tom Clancy novels. I tend to prefer the old-fashioned Cold War ones or the political ones. Again, I would put this one in the middle of the pack in terms of the novels. All that said, I do think it's one of the top-tier film adaptations. These next two, numbers two and three, I should probably talk about together as they do, in fact, go together. Number three, The Pink Panther from 1963, and number two, A Shot in the Dark from 1964. During the dark days of February, Mrs. Quarterbin announced that she'd like to watch all the Peter Sellers Pink Panther movies. I think she was probably thinking mostly about the 1970s ones, like Return and Strikes Again, that run of films. But I decided we needed to start at the start, and so this is where we started. And I have to say, I went so back and forth on these two, which to put just a tad ahead of the other, it's hard, because both are excellent, both are very funny, both are well cast, well acted, well written, just both are great. The first one of these, uh, The Pink Panther, has three great strengths going for it. The opening credits are wonderful, uh, complete with the animated character we all know and love. Also, it has the full Pink Panther theme, the Henry Mancini music. So that's two great strengths. Uh, the music uh, goes throughout the film, and that animated opening. And the third thing this movie has going for it is the very smooth, and dare I use the word again, charming, David Niven as the burglar. The biggest drawback of this first one was an extended dance and music scene in the middle, which was just strange. Very 60s-ish, I thought. 
And upon seeing that first one, I figured I had seen the best one of this series. And that was until I saw the second one, which, because of its name, A Shot in the Dark, is not always remembered as a Pink Panther film. For one thing, it does not use the animated character in the opening. And though it is scored by Henry Mancini, it does not use the iconic theme. So how could it squeeze itself past the original? And there are a number of ways in which this one is better. First, the slapstick element of the comedy is cranked up a bit. The first one is more of a humorous, light action film, while this one seems more leaning into being a comedy first. Now, in that light, uh, this movie, A Shot in the Dark, is the one that introduces the two most famous beloved side characters, both of whom were absent in the first. I speak, of course, of Herbert Lom as Chief Inspector Dreyfus and Bert Kwok as Cato. Their presence just cements the formula of the films, the expectations, and the nostalgia that I had for the films. And so because of them, and also Elkie Summer I Caramba, a shot in the dark just barely noses out the Pink Panther in the battle for second place on the list. You know, now as I look back at this list, the prior 19 films, every one of them is part of a series with multiple movies or part of a larger IP enterprise. Aeon Flux and Fletch are the least tied to famous properties, but still, they are tied to existing properties. And I don't think the original Pink Panther movie was intended to generate a series, but still, it did. So here we are at number one, and this, I think, is the only actual, truly, honest-to-gosh, standalone, one-off, fully original film on the list. And it's a multiple award winner, box office of about eight times its production budget, Starring the adorable Sandra Bullock and the kind of average-looking, if you want to be honest, George Clooney. From director Alfonso Cuaron, number one, Gravity. I don't always agree with critics, and I certainly don't always agree that Bafo box office means quality. Have you seen some of the people who go to the movie theater? But in this case, both the fans and the critics and the award-giver-outers all got it right. Rotten Tomatoes has this film at a critic score of 96%, and this was the biggest box office hit of both Clooney and Bullock's careers. Now, space opera can be fun. Space fantasy can be fun. Swashbuckling action can be fun. All of that is true. But when it's done well, hard sci-fi is probably my favorite type of sci-fi, my favorite sub-genre. And that's what this is. It's smart sci-fi. It's certainly dramatic sci-fi. 
It's well-written sci-fi, and it's certainly well-performed sci-fi. My wife and I have long been fans of Bullock. That's right. We like both Miss Congeniality films. And I've mentioned the word multiple times in this episode, but I find her effortlessly charming. And I think I said this already about her. She's pretty darned adorable. And here, her drama chops are on full display. As the drama and the terror of her situation unfold, excellent work there. She had a great script to work with. Terrific director. And it all just comes together for me. And well, there you go. As promised, some movie talk. Okay, well, I guess this is what an episode of this new show, Alan's Eyes and Ears, is going to be like. Or, this is what it could be like. Because the point of the show is to be varied, to cover a range of topics. Although, next time, we are going back to comics. You knew that I couldn't stay away for long. We will start a review of my collection, just giving me a chance to talk about all the comics that I have, which, to be honest, compared to lots of you, is not all that many. And that will be a series of, you know, I really don't know how many episodes that miniseries will be. We shall see. I would love to hear your thoughts on this episode, on any or all of these 20 movies, how embarrassingly incorrect my opinions are. Which of these 20 would be your number one and or your number 20? Or at least tell me how badly I messed up the order of the apes flicks or the Conans. I don't know how we will cover feedback on this show, whether it will be feedback segments like I do on most of our shows or full feedback episodes every now and then. But the important thing to understand is that this show will give a prominent place to feedback. We value your comments and appreciate your listenership. Feedback can be sent via email, relativelygeeky at gmail.com, or a comment on the Twitter or Facebook post for the episode, or directly on the blog. The blog is at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. Thanks for listening. All are welcome. And for old time's sake, keep the pages turning. <laughs>